Genesis chapter number 25. Genesis chapter 25 is where we're going to begin tonight. And uh, we've been looking on Wednesday nights at Jesus B.C. And seeing uh, the Lord working in the Old Testament. We are seeing salvation in the Old Testament. And what I've sought to uh, make abundantly clear is that salvation has always came the same way. Uh, people weren't saved a different way in the Old Testament than they are now. Uh, God hasn't changed his mind or his way of operating with mankind. But instead, the Bible lays out for us a slow unfolding of God's plan and his purpose from the very beginning. And we can track it from the very first words at the beginning of Scripture, whenever uh, God said, uh, let, let there be light, and began everything off and created all things, that even then he knew that mankind was going to sin, that he was going to have to uh, bleed and die as a substitute for mankind to redeem them unto himself. And in doing so, he was going to glorify himself and he was going to reveal himself and his love to all mankind. And so with all of these things that we've looked at, we saw in uh, Adam and Eve that they were saved by faith, that they believed God. And uh, to borrow from words that were attributed or that were describing Abraham, uh, they believed God and it was counted to them for righteousness. Right. And we see that over and over again in the Old Testament, that whenever they believe God, that God accounts it to them for righteousness. That it's not just that they believe in him, that he exists, but they believe uh, according to what has been uh, revealed about God, and they believe it. Mm -hmm. And we see that that's part of the unfolding process, that the longer that we go through Scripture, the more that God has uh, revealed about himself, and the more that man is accountable for. And so in Adam and Eve's time, God says, don't, not, don't eat off the tree. They eat off the tree, and they were sinful, and their sin worked about a consequence. It worked about a judgment, and God offered up to them a, uh, a way out, if you will. He offered them salvation. He says, if you will accept this substitute dying on your behalf, and this promise that I give you of a future Redeemer then you won't die today, and you won't die spiritually. Mm -hmm. And so he delivered them through that. And that was a very basic, very uh, limited understanding of God and his working of salvation compared to what we have today. Uh, what we have today, there are volumes and uh, books and many books and libraries full of books uh, discussing uh, his workings with mankind and workings of salvation. But back then, it was a very simple thing, right? Right. We looked at Noah, and God says to Noah, he already, uh, he already knew there was a God, but God says, I'm going to judge man for their sinfulness. And in Noah, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is something that we're going to look at a little bit tonight. But in Noah, I believe that God could detect faith. Mm -hmm. I believe that he looked at the entire world and he says, out of all of this world, if I come to Noah, Noah will believe. And I believe that's why he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, because we know that uh, faith is what pleases God. Right. And so he looked at Noah and he says, Noah will, be will believe me. And he revealed his plan to Noah, and Noah believed him. Right. And once again, counted to him for righteousness. And going on forward there, we looked at Abraham. And God told Abraham, he says, 
Uh, of course, Abraham being out of a family of pagans, a region of pagans, um, he says, I am the God of all creation. I'm the one that's made all these things, all the things that you've seen before are false gods. And if you will follow me, then I'm going to do a great work through you and your family. Uh, you will be multiplied as the number of sand on the seashore, as the stars of heaven for multitude. And through your lineage, I will bless the entire earth. I'll bring about salvation through you. And Abraham believed God, left his homeland, and started following him. And he followed him imperfectly, as all of us do. And we see that all of these men that we've looked at so far, and women, uh, it wasn't by their righteousness, it wasn't by virtue of their good works, but it was because they believed God. And so Abraham had a, an upward trajectory, but it was kind of up and down. It was like the heating oil prices. It's going up, but drops a little about, Right? And so that's what was going on with Abraham. And so he would make some forward progress and he'd fall back a little bit and make some forward progress and do something stupid. And every time God would uh, reiterate to him the promise that he had already uh, given, he said, I haven't, just because you failed doesn't mean I'm going to withhold or withdraw my hand and my promises from you. I'm not going to cast you away just because uh, you made a stupid decision. And instead he, uh, he comes back and reconfirms or reaffirms uh, the promises that he made to him. We saw a lot was a very good illustration of the fact it's not by righteousness that we have done, but by his grace that he saves us. And Lot had uh, Lot was a good example of a carnal Christian. Uh, lived for himself basically throughout his entire life. Yes, he believed God, but he didn't live like it. Mm-hmm. He blended in with the world. He made a lot of bad decisions. His family paid the price because of it. And God still counted him as righteous because of his faith. And so if anyone says that they were saved by uh, their works in the Old Testament, how in the world do you look at Lot and his life and the mess that it was and say, oh, it was Lot's uh, stellar testimony that he had. That was what Satan, no, it was by his faith. Last week, what we looked at, we looked at uh, Abraham and Isaac, specifically looking at Isaac. And Isaac being one of the best types of Christ in Scripture. And we see that though he has his flaws and his faults, which Christ does not, and so he's not a perfect type, right? Right. There is no such thing as a perfect type. But anyway, we see that him being the promised son, uh, the long-awaited son. We see him uh, being obedient to the father, carrying up the, the wood for the sacrifice up to the top of the mountain. Him willingly submitting to the will of the father and laying out on the altar. And God shows Abraham, he says, this is what I'm going to have to go through one day. This is why I'm calling you out. This is why I have chosen you and your family, is that one day one of your descendants will be my son, and he will be offered up on top of a mountain for all of mankind. And that time, there wouldn't be a ram that was given as a substitute, right? So then we also see the ram being given as a substitute for... uh, for Isaac being another type of Christ in Scripture, right? And after that, we saw the the uh, servant of the Father, uh, the Holy Spirit, going to get a bride, the church, for the Son, Jesus, right? Uh, all that typology with Isaac. And so what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at Isaac's two sons. And Isaac has two sons by his wife, Rebecca. this... Uh, this wife that the servant went to go and get for him, right? And he has two sons 
Jacob and Esau, and we're going to look at these two men and see what they tell us uh, about salvation and God's works with mankind. So Genesis chapter 25, we're going to be down in verse number 19. It says, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Just, just a little bit of trivia. Uh, how long do you think that she was barren before she conceived? How long do you think they had to wait? Now, don't look ahead. I want you to know, I want to see how long you think it is. You think of it being very long? Okay, so she was barren. He entreated of God for her on her behalf, and God and God opened up her womb. So, if you had to put a number of years to it or a number of months, how long was was she barren after they were married before she had children? Ten years. Well, at least one of you is brave enough to say something. <laughs> is there an exact answer? Yes, there is. But I'm trying to get your all's opinion, and you're all afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm wanting you to say the wrong thing. Yeah, okay, well, let's keep reading. And it says, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her, day, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three score years old when she bare them. So how long was it after he entreated before? It's 20 years. So there's kind of a history of this with Abraham and his family, isn't there? God says, I'm going to take your family. I'm going to multiply them. I'm going to make them as the sand on the seashore. All the... All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed because of them. And Abraham waited and waited and waited some 40 years, I believe it was, or somewhere around there, 30 or 40 years. And in the process of time, he gave up and got desperate, and he went through Hagar and had Ishmael, right? And so Isaac had Rebekah, and he thought, okay, here we go. We're going to start having children. We're going to start fulfilling this prophecy. We've got this promise from God. We're going to make these things happen. And year went by, and two, and five, and ten, and fifteen. And finally, at year number 20, whenever Isaac is 60 years old, he has his first child. Right? First two children. And God often works this way. And this goes along the idea of him requiring faith. Because if everything goes the way that you expect it to go, does it require faith? No. It's whenever things go the way you don't expect. It's whenever things are difficult. 
It is then that your faith is tested. It is then that your faith is shown because then you have to trust God even when you're not getting results. Okay? It's really easy to say that you have faith when you see the results all around you, right? Right. It's easy to say that you trust God when everything's going your way. But it is through the hardships and the difficulties and that refining process that faith is proven. Okay? And so anyway, that's just a bit of a side note there. But uh, going on with this, verse number 27, it says, And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with this, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name was his name called Edom, which simply means red. Verse 31, And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat bread and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And so out of the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah, there are two children that came about. They're the only two that are recorded from them, I believe. Jacob and Esau, and they are a significant pair because we find two children from the same parents out of the same womb at the same time going two completely different directions. And this is often the case that siblings are quite different, right? But we're talking about this in relation to uh, the work that God was doing. And there was a prophecy that came about whenever they were struggling within the womb of Rebekah, and she couldn't figure out why there was so much turmoil within her womb. Of course, she couldn't go and have a scan done. Right? They didn't have the technology for that. She's just pregnant, and for some reason it seems like there's a battle going on within her within her belly, right? And she's praying to God, and she says, if things are going so well, if my prayers are finally being answered, why is it difficult? That's an interesting thing, isn't it? I'm getting my prayers answered. God's working. He's doing something. But... I was expecting if God's doing something, if he's answering my prayers, he's just going to make everything fall into place, that everything's just going to be smooth, right? I've heard it said lots of times that I know God's working. I know that God's in it because everything is just going so smoothly. And that always kind of makes me cringe just a little bit because that's not biblical. Generally, whenever God is doing things, he doesn't make everything just fall into place and go smoothly. And we've seen that over and over, right? But we do know that mankind craves a smooth path. Mankind craves uh, uh, simplicity. They crave ease. And a lot of times whenever the road is smooth, it's not necessarily the one that God has paved. And uh, just a few thoughts that I'm bringing out with all of this. Uh, but not necessarily the direction I want to go tonight, okay? And so anyway, as they are uh, fighting and fussing in her, she prays to God and says, why is it so difficult? And God says, you have two nations in your womb. I don't know that there's ever been a woman that's been told that at the doctors. 
You've got two nations, two manner of people that are in your womb and they are already warring with one another before they ever even come out. It's like, okay, you got what you wanted. You prayed for children. Get ready for the struggle. Get ready for the fight, right? And so you've got two nations and there's going to be a battle. And God is telling them this ahead of time. And it says that the elder is going to serve the younger. We have a promise already in place. God has promised Abraham, and that promise has been transferred from Abraham to Isaac. And now there's a set of twins, and by their culture and by their tradition, the older would be the one that got the inheritance and was the recipient of all the promises, right? Right. But with Jacob and Esau's case, God says, before they are ever even born that Jacob would be the one that would be the recipient of the promises, that Jacob was going to be the one that was greater and overpowered and that the older would serve the younger. And so in these passages and what we're finding, we're talking about uh, salvation, right? That's what we've been talking about. And Jacob and Esau is an example that a lot of people use uh, in New Testament times of trying to um, untangle or try to figure out how God's sovereignty fits into salvation, right? And Anna's shaking her head. She already knows these things, right? And what is the verse in the New Testament that refers to Jacob and Esau that they always mention? See, she's gone after. She's taking after me. She's like, I'm not going to answer. I'm going to drink coffee too. In Romans chapter number nine, it says, "Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated." Right? Yeah. And so, so people go to this and they say, before Jacob was ever born, before Esau was ever born, that God decided to favor Jacob and just kind of doom Esau. And this is where Calvinism springs from, right? This idea that God, for some reason, has chosen some to eternal life and he has chosen some to eternal damnation. But as we look through this, the Bible says that we are not, that scripture is not of any private interpretation. And by the way, what that verse means, it means you can't just take one verse by itself for anything, that all the verses go together, that we compare Scripture with Scripture, okay? And so as we look at the Bible and we see what it teaches, uh, it doesn't teach Calvinism. But there is a problem that arises in our minds that we as human beings, we have trouble uh, reconciling God's sovereignty, God's control over things with man's free will, mm-hmm. Right? And that's a little bit of what we're going to be discussing tonight. We're going to be looking at their lives a little bit more, and I don't want to just make this a a Calvinism debate or anything like that, but I do want to look at this a little bit and see what it actually teaches us, because we find what ends up happening is that God hasn't caused them to do any of the things that they are doing, but really the, the crux of it all is God is able to know ahead of time the heart and the mind of every person. He knows the end from the beginning. Whenever he said to Abraham, or not to Abraham, to Moses, that uh, his name was I am, that's present tense. He's never in the past, never in the future. He sees it all at the same time. So our decisions and our thoughts and our uh, ways of doing things, all of it is completely within God's knowledge. He knows everything that we are everything we ever will be. He knows the way we think. He knows the choices that we're going to make. But at the same time, though, he knows all of these things. 
he still has allowed us the free will to make the choices, to think these different ways, to be our own people, that God has not forced a single one of us one way or the other. And so foreknowing is not the same thing as foreclosing. And God, in his wisdom, takes what he does foreknow, and he mixes it in with his will and his purpose for humanity, and he brings about his purposes even though we have a free will. And that takes a lot of knowledge that we can't comprehend, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so as God was looking down uh, at this situation with Abraham, he looked at all the world, and he chose out Abraham, and I believe he did so because he knew Abraham and knew his receptivity. He knew that Abraham would express faith when God was revealed to him. Yeah. Okay? And so Abraham believed God. He responded according to the way that God knew that he would, according to God's foreknowledge and his wisdom. And then God rejected Ishmael because God could look down throughout time and he saw what Ishmael would become. Mm -hmm. He knew what Ishmael would be. And he says, yes, he's going to be a great nation. And he multiplied and made it a great nation. Even Abraham's mistake, Abraham's uh, big mess up there, God still was able to roll that into his plan and make good things come out of it. But God says it's not Ishmael. No matter how much Abraham argued with God or pleaded with God and said, just let it come through Ishmael, God says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. Well, why is it going to be Isaac? Because Isaac is going to express faith in me. Did God make him do it? No. But God knows the hearts of every man and knows what is in man. And so as a result of that, God is working these things out according to his purposes, right? Yeah. And he could see the direction that all these would go out. Uh, you can imagine God could <coughs> forecast in the future if Ishmael would have been the one that would have received the birthright, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of Isaac. And then he would have seen if Esau would have received it instead of Jacob, right? And so God is tracing this, and he is seeing this, and he knows it all ahead of time, and he says, I'm going to uh, veto what society says should happen and the way that things are traditionally handled, and instead of the elder, then the younger one is going to be the one that receives these things. Okay? And so he sees this with Esau and Jacob as well, because uh, if you look at Esau and Jacob and what they become, if you look at them and the way that they handle themselves and their attitudes toward God, was God right in choosing Jacob instead of Esau? Time made it clear that God made the right choice, right? And so as we bring this into modern times, into salvation, God knows how we will respond when we're presented with the gospel. He knows, and it says uh, that his uh, election is based upon his foreknowledge, okay? And so he knows, and he has chosen to save all those who are one day going to believe upon him right. and call upon him. Right. Okay? And so the Calvinists, what they do is they say that it's not based upon anything whatsoever of mankind, that man is completely corrupt and incapable of believing, that there is no faith in mankind except for the faith that God puts in him. And so God has pre-picked out the ones that he wants to save 
and he forces his faith upon them and makes them believe upon him, and they have no choice in the matter. Okay? And so they take this view, and I, I may be expressing it not in the most kind sense because I don't believe it. Okay? But they take this view because they are trying to protect the sovereignty of God. Whenever we come back to Jacob and Esau, we see that their free will and their choices does not encroach upon God's sovereignty, that God is so much bigger and so much greater that he is able to enfold their free will into his plan and still make his plan happen. And if we make God small enough to where he is not able to have his, he's not able to have his sovereignty and man still have a free will, then what we end up doing is we cause God to be the cause of all of the wickedness and all of the sin and the evil on the earth. Because if you take the uh, the opinion or the the view that God has foreordained, that he has forecaused all things of this world to happen, all those who have rejected him or chosen to reject him, and all those who have accepted him or chosen to accept him, and all the events down throughout history ends up coming right back to God, and God becomes responsible for every wickedness and every atrocity and every sin of mankind. But whenever we realize that God, in his sovereign will, has decreed man a free will, then mankind is free to choose whether or not he will believe God, whether or not he will serve God. And God's foreknowledge of that allows him to make his will and his plan happen in spite of man having a free will and rejecting him. Have I lost anyone yet? Just a little bit? Okay, that's normal. Okay. And so that's what we have going on here. And I want to come back to Jacob and Esau on this because as we continue through Jacob and Esau's life, we have this first thing that we've read here about the birthright. And we're getting a, an inkling, we're getting an insight into the way Jacob and Esau's minds work. Does anyone know what the birthright is? Okay, we actually have a blessing later on. So it's a separate thing, and he steals it as well. Anyone want to take a stab at it? Okay. That's one of the biggest ones, is his claim as an heir. So the birthright's going to go to the first one. And so the first one is going to get the inheritance, right? Mm -hmm. But what does he inherit? Is it is it just material property? Okay, that's a big one. He is then also the one that is the head of the family. So you inherit not just the wealth, but you inherit the headship. And so that's the responsibility. So he becomes the head of the family. He is responsible for the care of the family, uh, not just financially, uh, but also morally and religiously. Yeah. Before we come up to the Levitical priesthood, the... Uh, father and then the one who comes after him, the one who has the birthright, would act as the priest of the family. We see that going on in the book of Job as Job is exercising the priesthood over his family and he's offering up sacrifices and interceding on their behalf. And so even more, there is a spiritual side to this birthright. And in Abraham's case, the birthright would also be the promises would be inherited. The promises that God had given to Abraham and to Isaac, then the birthright would go 
also with those promises to Esau, right? And so now we're starting to get a glimpse, if you're still following me, we're starting to get a glimpse of where faith comes in in all of this, okay? Because as Isaac and Grandpa Abraham are spending time with Esau and Jacob, they are talking about their dealings with God. They're talking about the promises that God has given them, about the times that he has appeared to them and guided them and directed them. And they have made known the promises that God has given them for far-reaching future generations. And so they've heard on their father's and their grandfather's knee from the time that they were real little, God is going to take our family and he is going to use us. He is going to bless us. And through our family, God is going to bring about salvation to all of the world and all of the people of the earth are going to be blessed because of my family. And that is going to be passed on from Isaac to his heir, right? And as these boys are listening to this, it's apparent by Esau's flippant attitude that he doesn't care for any of it. Esau is a man that's a hunter. He's out in the land and he's living day by day. He comes back from hunting one day and it says that he is, what's the word that it uses here? It says that he was faint. He comes back and he was faint. He was tired after going out and hunting. Now for Esau being a man of the field, uh, going out and hunting and being a woodsman and all these things, do you think that he was at the place that he was at risk of dying of starvation? No, that's that's foolishness, right? There's no way he's coming back from a hunt and he's just dragging himself in saying, food, I'm food, I'm going to die, right? And he comes to Jacob and basically he says, I'm hungry, give me some food, Jacob. You just sat around the tent cooking like a woman. Sorry. But this is the idea behind it. He was, his, he was a mama's boy. He was uh, one who dwelled in tents and cooked soup, right? And so Esau came to Jacob's tent knowing he had something on the fire. And he says, Jacob, give me some of that soup, that pottage of lentils. Give me a bowl of beans. I'm going to die. And Jacob says, I'll give you some soup if you'll give me your birthright. Now, giving a little bit of an idea of what the birthright was, not just an inheritance from the father, but the promises of God on their family, the spiritual headship on their family, right? The responsibility on their family. Esau looked at it and said, I don't care. Give me soup. And so he says, I'm more concerned about right now. I'm more concerned with my belly. I'm more concerned with comforts. I'm more concerned with my life in this world right now than I am future generations and promises and God and all this stuff. I don't care about that stuff. Sure, take it all. Give me the soup. Okay? But for Jacob, why was he scheming? Yes, he went about it the wrong way. But why would he scheme and try to trick his brother out of this birthright? He's been hearing about this all of his life, and he says, I know I'm the younger one. I know I'm not supposed to be the one to inherit it, but oh, that God would work through me and my family, right? And he sees his chance, and he says, 
Esau, I know you don't care anything about this birthright. I'll trade you a bowl of soup for it. And he says, deal. And at the end of this in verse 34, it says, thus Esau despised his birthright. It doesn't tell us that Esau was mad because he got tricked out of the birthright. The blessing, yes, because the blessing was fruitful fields and fat cattle and that kind of stuff. Esau says, yeah, give me that, right? But whenever it says, thus Esau despised his birthright, it means that Esau looked at it as if it was nothing. And so he says, I've got all the promises of God in my back pocket, but I'll trade them for a bowl of soup. But Jacob, on the other hand, says, those promises of God are worth something. And if he can buy them cheap, then that's all the better. But I have a feeling he would have bought them for a lot more than a bowl of soup. But he looked at it and he says, this is worth something. God has made promises to us and I want in on it. And so we are seeing here a glimpse of his faith. Is he going about it the right way? No, he's not. And we see from the very beginning here, it's not because Jacob is righteous. It's not because he's a good guy. It's not because of any of these things. It's because he has faith and he says, I want the things of God. And Esau says, I don't care about the things of God. Okay? And so why did God choose Jacob? He says, Jacob is seeking me. Jacob is interested in me. Jacob will have faith in me. Esau couldn't care less. And so he chose Jacob. And now I don't want to keep this comparison up uh, all the way to salvation of today because it's not that one person is rejected and another person chose, as you would see within Calvinism. But we see that mankind is still the same way, that mankind has a heart either inclined toward God or away from. And we don't know how any man is going to be, but God does know the hearts of every individual and every person. And he wants them to hear about him so that those inclined toward him will call upon him and will be saved. Now, there is a portion of people, there is actually probably the larger portion of people who are like Esau and couldn't care less about the things of God. And if God delivers it to them on a silver platter, they are still going to reject it. But God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But it is dependent upon the choice that they make. Whenever they have uh, this silver platter before them, whether they accept it or they'll sell it for a bowl of soup. Mm -hmm. And the equivalent to that today is that many people will reject Christ, will reject his offer of salvation for sake of their own pride, for their religion, for their works, for uh, popularity, for uh, public opinion, for whatever. Mm-hmm. And people will say, I, I don't, I'm not interested in God because I've got all of these things here now before me. Yeah. I'm too hungry after this world to care at all for what God has in store in the next. Mm-hmm. I'm not worried about heaven and hell. I'm not worried about sins and a day of judgment because I'm worried about working my job and paying for my car and sending my kids off to university or whatever else is their bowl of soup, right? And so people trade it and say, these things are more important to me than the things of God ever will be. And they reject him for a bowl of soup. And so as we look at Jacob and Esau, we can continue following them and seeing how this plays out. Um, chapter 26 pretty much 
refers to Isaac, and we've already looked at him. I don't want to continue looking at him, uh, or we'll be here another week. But in chapter number 27, we have the account of the stolen blessing. This is a story that we probably all know, that Rebecca overhears Isaac. And by the way, uh, each parent had a favorite child, and it didn't bode well for them, right? And so it calls there to be... Uh, with this favoritism, it caused there to be uh, trickery and lying and deceit, uh, all kinds of stuff going on, right? Mm-hmm. And so we find that that's never a good thing within a family. But uh, Rebecca hears Isaac tell Esau, go out, go hunting, kill a deer, and bring me some meat so that I can bless you. In this, we kind of see where Esau gets his uh, love for food at, right? And Rebecca says, I heard your dad is planning on blessing your brother. Go out and kill a a kid of the goats for me. And I'm going to cook it up like we normally would a deer. And you're going to present it to your father and pretend that you are your brother because your father is blind. And apparently she thought he was a little bit stupid. And she must have been right. But anyway... She said, prepare it for your father, or I'll prepare it for your father, and you take it to him, and you be the recipient of the blessing. And Jacob brings up a few uh, concerns, and he says, if I do this, what if I get caught? Isn't that always our concern? It's not, Mom, it's wrong. I can't do that. I can't trick and deceive Dad. This is lying, and it's ungodly, and I can't do it. It's like, no, what if I get caught? And she says, then I will take the fall for you. It'll come back on my head. I'll take the blame if you get caught. And he's like, okay, fair enough. Shining example of Christianity, right? <laughs> Surely he was saved by his good works, wasn't he? His name was Jacob, which means trickster or heel catcher, right? Like someone who would reach out and trip someone up. That was his name and that was his character that's what he did and so anyway he goes and he gets a kid he dresses it up uh meaning prepares her for food not puts it in sunday best but anyway uh he gets the kid he dresses it for her food she cooks it and he takes the skin from the animal puts it on his arm because he's smooth and his brother is hairy so apparently esau if you want to imagine what he looks like uh his skin and his hair was as rough as a goat You ever pet a goat? That's what Esau felt like. Anyway, and he put on Esau's clothes because apparently his mom was still doing his laundry, even though he was quite old at this time. Uh, And he puts on uh, Esau's clothes and he goes into his dad and his dad says, the voice is Jacob's, but it feels and smells like Esau. So sure, why not? And he proceeds to give a fatherly blessing to Jacob And he blesses his fields, he blesses his lands, gives him the increase, all of these different things. And just about the time that that Isaac is swallowing his last bite of tasty venison, that was actually a goat, Jacob is barely going, and Esau comes in and says about the same thing that Isaac does, and says, here, I've brought the meat that you've asked for so you can bless me. And Isaac trembles and he realizes he messed up and he says wait i already blessed you and he says no you didn't i've been 
tricked again, right? Mm -hmm. And they realize that Jacob has done it again. And he is angry at Jacob. And he says, surely you'll give me some sort of a blessing. And in part of the blessing that Esau gets says that he is going to be a, a wild man and every man's going to be again. Well, I think that might have been Ishmael. Let me look here. Verse number 40 of chapter 27. And by the sword thou shalt live, and thou shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. So that was his blessing. You're going to live by the sword. Eventually you're going to get powerful enough that you are going to overthrow this servanthood that's been imposed upon you, and you'll eventually get your freedom. You're going to serve your brother, you eventually get your freedom. And Esau hated his blessing, and he hated his brother, and says, I'm going to kill him first chance I get. And once again, Rebecca's listening in, and she says, oh no, my favorite son. And so she schemes again. There's lots of scheming going on in this family. Mm -hmm. And she goes to uh, goes to Isaac and says, Esau, your older son, has married a Canaanite. We get a little insight there. He's married women of Canaan, and they were grieved by it said, we don't want Jacob to marry one of these Canaanite women, one of these pagan women, so send him back to my family so that he can get a wife of our people rather than of the pagan people that we live around. And Isaac says, oh, that's a great idea. I'm glad I thought of it. And so he calls Jacob in and says, hey, Jacob, why don't you go down and get you a wife from your uncle's family? And he doesn't realize that he's doing this in order to save Jacob's neck because Esau wants to kill him. So anyway, Jacob goes toward Laban, and as he is going toward Laban, in chapter 28, Jacob meets God. He goes to Bethel, which you'll recognize, hopefully, is where Abraham first came into the promised land and where he met with God, and he made promises with God, and Bethel means house of God. And so as he's going through Bethel, he uh, meets with God here. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, just to back up a little bit, chapter 28, verse 4, he says, this is uh, Isaac speaking to Jacob. I'll go ahead and say verse 3 as well. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee. And to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And so this was Isaac's words to Jacob as he's sending him away. He's saying, I'm conferring upon you the blessing that went to Abraham. Esau didn't get it. He married a Canaanite and sold the birthright for a pot of soup. And so he says, you're going to be the one that carries forth this blessing, the lineage which Jesus is going to come from. And sends him away to Pat Anaram to Rachel's family, or Rebecca's family, uh, Rachel's family too. And whenever he comes to Bethel, it says that he uses a stone for a pillow and he has a dream. Now, if you had a stone for a pillow, you'd probably have weird dreams too. But he saw a dream and there was a ladder that went up to heaven and he saw angels ascending and descending on it and God speaking from heaven and made him the promise that God had previously made to Abraham and Isaac. And so not only has Isaac conferred this on 
Jacob. Now God is conferring it on Jacob. And so now as I say all of this, Jacob and his mother has done a lot of scheming to bring about what God had promised from the beginning would happen. Was it God's will for them to do all the scheming, lying, and cheating? Did God cause them to do that? Did he make them do that? But God did say that Jacob would be the one that inherited the birthright, would get the blessing, and be the one that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed by, right? And it would have happened whether or not they schemed, whether or not they lied, whether or not they cheated. And if you take the other approach to this, if you look at this in the Calvinistic mindset, it is that God had chose or excuse me, God had chose Jacob and God had caused Jacob to do all these things and make all these things happen almost in a fatalistic mindset that Jacob had no control over it, right? But instead, Jacob had a free will. He made all these decisions and God in his wisdom, his sovereignty and his power and ability, which we can't comprehend, he used all of Jacob's follies to still bring about his will and his purpose. Okay? We find that even the things that the devil does, God can work them together for good, right? All the times that the devil has tried to undo God's plans and usurp God's power and ability, every time he does that, God rolls that in to his plan and makes his things happen. If God can do that with the devil, can he also do it with a Jacob or an Esau? So whenever we bring it up to modern day perspective, it is not by our good works, not because we are such sterling specimens of humanity that God has saved us or chose any of us, but instead it is because of our faith or trust in him that he saves us. And it's not because of how wicked and depraved and horrible anyone is that they go to hell, but it's because they have rejected him, because they have refused his offer of salvation. They've sold it for a bowl of soup, right? Honestly, if you look at Jacob and Esau side by side, I don't know that you can necessarily say that one was a better person than the other. I don't find Esau tricking anyone, deceiving anyone. Yes, he wants to kill his brother, right? Have you ever wanted to kill someone? Yeah. There's times whenever you get so angry, you want to kill someone. Hopefully you control yourself and you don't actually do it. Okay. But Jacob, or excuse me, Esau, whenever he was so double-crossed by Jacob, he wanted to kill him. Whether he would have followed through with it, we don't know. But we do know that whenever Jacob comes back some 20-some years later, that Esau meets him, hugs him, falls on his neck, kisses him, weeps, him, or weeps on him, and invites him to come and live next to him. Yeah. And doesn't even want any of his stuff. He says, God has prospered me. He's been good to me. I don't need your stuff. And Jacob makes him take it. So would he have killed him? Maybe, maybe not. But I don't necessarily find all that much bad about Esau whenever you start comparing him to Jacob. But what we do find different is their uh, attitude toward the things holy and eternal. And Esau was living for today. He was living for this world. He was living for his own interests. And Jacob, as messed up as he was, said, I'm interested in things eternal. 
I'm interested in God and his blessings on me. And so I'm going to seek after them the best that I know how. And so he expressed faith in God while Esau did not. And the best that we can tell, Esau most likely won't be in heaven one of these days. We don't know for sure. He may be. He may not be. Most of his descendants are not. Okay? But it is a matter of faith. And so whenever, uh, I need to wrap this up, but whenever uh, Jacob gets to, uh, to Haran, he meets up with his uncle Laban. And the trickster gets out-tricked. Yeah. And whenever he gets there, uh, I believe he arrives there now as a saved man. Okay? That is debatable. At the end of chapter number 28, you find that uh, verse 20, it says, And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Mm -hmm. All the way up until now, he's been the God of Abraham and Isaac. Yeah. Okay? We find later on he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Later on, he is my God. But here he says, if God does all these things, then he shall be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. He's talking to God in faith. He says, I know that you've made promises. I know that you're there. I know that you have been working in the lives of my family and God, if you will continue working in my life and you'll take care of me, then you'll be my God. So in a way, you could look at this and say, this is half-hearted faith. You could say that it was uh, a conditional faith. But just as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings for a while, there's a difference between faith and following, right? And so he believed in God. He believed God's promises. He had been seeking after them. And he's saying, God, if you will take care of me, then will I serve you. Right? He's saying, I believe in you. I'm trusting in you, in essence, for the promises and for the salvation. But God, if you will take care of my life, then I will use it for your glory. And I believe there's lots of Christians that are there and they're saying, yes, I believe in you for the future and for eternity. And God, if you'll just take care of me now, I will then dedicate my life to you. They're at that place of decision. Can I trust him here now? I'm trusting him later on. And so this is where he was. And one of the reasons, in addition to this, that I believe that he enters into Haran as a saved man is that now he is entering into, uh, into Haran as a child of God and the father is now dealing with him as a son. Because whenever he meets uh, Laban, he starts a little bit of chastening. He gets a taste of his own medicine. And so God puts him in touch with Laban that does exactly to him what he had previously done to Esau. Right? Because... Jacob had tricked his father about which brother he was, and now the father is going to trick Jacob about which daughter he gets. Does that make sense? And so as he goes to Laban, he meets up with Rachel, and he falls in love with Rachel. 
and he espouses her to himself. And he says, I will work seven years for your daughter. And it says that it seemed as if they were but days because of the love he had for her. And after seven years of working for Laban, they throw their marriage together, the wedding together. He takes his bride into their tent and she becomes his wife. And the next day he wakes up and he got the ugly sister. And he says, foul, I've been tricked. How dare you? And then he realized he got a taste of his own medicine. And he covenants with Laban and he says, I'll work another seven years for Rachel and I'll take Leah as well. And so after the week was fulfilled, he got his extra wife, but he still had to work another seven years. So essentially working 14 years for the, the woman he wanted. And there's a few lessons, not quite related to what we're talking about here, a few lessons that we can pull out of this. And uh, one of them, we see that um, I'll put this delicately. Because of the, the love that he had for her was love, he was able to wait. Lust doesn't wait. Lust needs immediate fulfillment, right? And if he merely lusted after Rachel, could he have worked seven years in waiting for her? Mm -mm. And so it says that it was as just days because of the love that he had for her. So that is a, a good test of whether it's love because love waits. Uh, another thing that we find from this is that uh, God has a sense of humor. He has a way of teaching us lessons and working through our hang-ups and our hardships and stuff. And so God is using the years in Haran as a refining process to change the character of Jacob. Because whenever God saves us, he doesn't want to leave us where he found us. He wants to grow us and strengthen us and overcome our faults and our failures and things. And so Jacob, whenever he comes out of Haran, is not the same man that went in because God uses this time and the situations he goes through to sift and to refine Jacob. And he comes out and God gives him a new name and he is now Israel. And we find that later on whenever he wrestles with God and prospers, right? Says that he wrestles God until the breaking of the day and God gives him a new name and says, uh, you are now called Israel because you have power with God and with men. Now, that's a great improvement over heel catcher or supplanter, isn't it? But it wouldn't be possible for him to be Israel if it wasn't for all the things that he went through in Herod, all the refining times that he spent down there. And so God made a different person, a different man out of him. And so whatever we see in Scripture, it says, if any man be in Christ, that he is a new creature, the old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new, we find that uh, it doesn't happen in an instant. And Jacob, whenever he was down in uh, Haran, he was becoming new. He was becoming different. God was transforming his life, and he did that. And not always through the most pleasant of means, but also while he was down there, he prospered him. And the way that he went through things and the way that God blessed him and work through all of his troubles and things. Even Laban uh, says in chapter 30, verse number 27, And Laban said unto him, I pray thee if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. 
He says, I can see God on your life and I can say, see that I have been blessed and benefited just by your being here. And so he begins dealing with Jacob on behalf of that. And so with what God was doing in Jacob's life, it was bringing glory to God and showing people that God was with Jacob. So bringing this back to Christianity and what we've been talking about this evening with Jacob and Esau, God can see our hearts. He sees our uh, our receptiveness, our openness to him, our faith, even if it's small, even if it's only a seed. And whenever we trust in him, we are saved by faith, not because of how great we are or how wonderful we are. And then whenever we are saved, God will work in our hearts and our lives and to bring about a change and a transformation and will change who we are if we will let him. Okay? And he can use even our testings, our trials, to be a light and a witness to the world that is around us. It changes us, and it is a testimony to those who know us. And uh, so that's what he is doing through salvation here. And we can see this all throughout Jacob's life. Uh, we don't have time to go further into this, but even over time, he comes out of uh, and He comes back to his homeland, and God starts building him as a, as a people there in... Bethel and in Canaan and in the promised land. Okay. But once again, it was a process and it originated by faith and it continued through a walk with God as God worked in his life and God was able to use Jacob mightily in spite of who Jacob was, just simply because he trusted in God. Okay. He had faith in God. So we look at it in relation to our lives. We might be just as messed up as Jacob is. We might have a, uh, a bad past. We might have made plenty of failures and mistakes. And we may still be making them, right? But whenever we trust in God, even if it's imperfectly, when we trust in him, uh, first and foremost for salvation, we become born again into his family. He starts a new work in us. And as we submit to him, he can work in our lives in spite of us and make beautiful things out of us, bring about promises and bless, blessings and prosperity where before was uh, wretchedness and uh, Jacob-like behavior, right? And so God does all these things. And so through all of this, we find it is our response to God by faith that saves not our goodness, not our family heritage, not anything else about us. It is our faith. So does anyone have any questions or any comments on what we looked at tonight? Nothing at all? Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you tonight. Just thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for these passages that we find in Scripture and how they relate to our lives and how they enlighten our understanding and how you work with uh, with us, Lord. And Lord, I thank you that it's not because of my works, that it's not because of how good I am or perfect I am that you saved me, but it's out of your goodness and your mercy as a result of me simply putting my faith in you to do what I can't do. And Lord, we just pray that you would just work in our lives and grow us and guide us and draw us to yourself. Help us, Lord, to be a light and a witness. We're thankful for, for Jacob's example here that 
even with as messed up as he was, that Laban could see God in him. And Lord, I pray that people could see God in our lives. We thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.